everyone agrees there were two particularly terrifying peaks in the Cold War, 1983 and 1962. I'm partial to 1983 myself, probably because I was alive then, and can even faintly remember some of the nuclear tensions of that time. The other big scary moment was of course the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, the fear reaching its peak on what became known as Black Saturday, when it seemed that nuclear war was horribly inevitable. In this episode we'll look through newspaper archives from Britain and America to see how that horrible Black Saturday was reported. Did it really seem like the end of the world? But first, a very quick recap of what the Cuban Missile Crisis was. Kennedy was in charge in America. And we all know Kennedy's image, of course. Youthful, confident, handsome, bold. And over in the Soviet Union, we had Khrushchev. And his image is, in ways, similar to Kennedy's. Taking power after Stalin, he was, quite obviously, seen as a breath of fresh air so far as Soviet leaders could be seen as fresh. But of course, compared to Stalin and then the sick elderly men who followed him, he was obviously relatively youthful and bright. We know that he visited America and was photographed enjoying a Pepsi with Nixon. Try imagining the others doing that. And he was so charmed by Jackie Kennedy's wit and beauty that he sent her a puppy. When he met her, the Washington Post wrote that Khrushchev looked like a Russian schoolboy on the banks of the Volga when the snow melts in the springtime. Although before we all start thinking, oh, what a sweetheart he was, let's bear in mind that the puppy he sent to the Kennedys was born from one of the Soviet space dogs. So, although it was cute... It may have been a canine reminder that the Soviets had been up in space first, thank you very much. (coughs) So our twinkly Khrushchev and our handsome JFK exchanged gifts and letters, which is, is nice, it's comforting in fact. And yet we know that those two presidents still took us to the brink of nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's something to chew on. We can slide towards war, even with two men in charge who are able to maintain some kind of friendship, correspondence, exchange of gifts. How lucky then we've been to avoid it under presidents who are openly hostile. But even puppies and charming wives and nice letters were not enough to stop the shock and anger when America discovered that the Soviets were up to something on the island of Cuba. An American spy plane brought back photographs of strange activity on the ground. Yes, it seemed the Russians were installing nuclear missiles on the island, just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. This was unthinkable, 
No way could America allow Soviet missiles so close to their territory. Even though there were US missiles in Turkey, which shared a border with the Soviet republics of Georgia and Armenia. Nonetheless, the Americans said no. They insisted no more missiles be delivered to Cuba and that those already on the island be dismantled and sent home. To enforce this, they set up a blockade around the island to make sure the incoming Soviet ships couldn't get through to deliver their missiles. Not without starting a war anyway. However, the Americans were very careful not to call it a blockade, which sounds very military and confrontational. Instead, they referred to it as a quarantine, which sounds careful and reasonable and healthy. Well, as we know, the Soviet ships kept on charging across the ocean, onwards, without stopping, straight towards the blockade. And, as the cliché goes, the world held its breath. Would the Soviets turn back? Would they charge on through the blockade? And if so, would the Americans open fire? And is this it? Is this nuclear war? It all ended well, of course. We're still here. A compromise was reached. The Soviets would withdraw their Cuban missiles and the Americans, in exchange, would agree not to invade Cuba again. Secretly, behind the scenes, there was also the agreement that the Americans would later on withdraw their Turkish missiles. So let's look at Black Saturday. The Cuban crisis lasted for 13 days, reaching its most frightening point on Saturday, 27th October. On this day, Soviets in Cuba shot down an American spy plane, killing its pilot. Some of Kennedy's advisers recommended military retaliation, while Castro went crying to Khrushchev, saying he now feared imminent American invasion. Khrushchev sent a harshly worded note to Kennedy, demanding the Turkish missiles be withdrawn. To quote the New York Times, That night, men in Washington went to sleep, not knowing if they would awake in the morning. And wives debated whether to stay in Washington with their husbands or go to safer rural hideaways. Almost all stayed, including Jackie Kennedy. As you know, this podcast is about ordinary people, not military tactics or the politics behind these crises. So let's look at how people responded on that terrible day. The BBC's Witness Programme, which is available on the podcast, and I recommend it, tells us about the CIA official Dino Brugioni. He says, I called my wife that night and told her, if I call you again, put the kids in the car and set out for Missouri, where my parents live, because I was convinced we were going to be bombing the missile sites on Monday. He goes on to say, I had an eight-year-old daughter and a one-year-old son. Just the thought of my wife packing them up and leaving hit me pretty hard. But I had seen atomic blasts and I knew the destruction they'd left. And I felt sure that Washington would be a target. He also says he remembers the US Defence Secretary, Robert McNamara, saying he wondered if there'd be another dawn.
Let's look at what the newspapers reported on that day. Starting with the Times, the London Times. On Black Saturday, their front page carried a headline saying Gravest Threat to Peace Since 1945. The article was quoting Conrad Adenauer, the Chancellor of West Germany, and we know that the Germans, especially the Berliners, had particular reason to be panicked by events in Cuba. After all, Khrushchev famously described Berlin as the testicles of the West, saying if I want to make the West scream, I squeeze Berlin. And what were the Guardian saying on Black Saturday? For listeners outside Britain, let me just say the Guardian has always been regarded as more left-wing. They were very bluntly saying on the front page, talk of a nuclear attack. Although their headlines, in line with their left-wing position, or centre-left at least, did seem to subtly imply America was the aggressor, with their main headline being America threatens new move against Cuba. And elsewhere on the front page we had America insisting on destruction of rocket sites. No mention here, on the headlines at least, of the Soviets. It's all about America threatening and America insisting on destruction. But as with the Times, ordinary humdrum news sat alongside talk of nuclear destruction. The news from Cuba had to share space on the front page with this story. MP's letter lost on railway. front page story said Sir Arthur Veer Harvey MP has stopped using British railways because of their late timekeeping and dirty coaches and is now travelling by air every time he has to go up to Macclesfield. He'd be slaughtered for that these days wouldn't he? It seems he was furious because his letter had been lost on the railway and so he wrote to his local newspaper the Macclesfield Advertiser asking constituents to give him examples of late delivery of parcels. It seems Sir Arthur was furious because letters and parcels were always being misplaced on the railway. He had been told that one of his parcels was handed to the guard of the train at Macclesfield for Stockport, but that it was then overcarried to Manchester. There, the guard, realising his error, handed it to the guard of another train about to leave for Stockport. But this time it was over-carried to Cheadle Hume. At Cheadle Hume, the parcel was given to the guard of another train, with instructions to hand it in at Stockport. No further trace of the parcel has been found. The important front page story ends with Sir Arthur is to ask a question in the House of Commons about the late delivery of parcels. So was Black Saturday really so black, at least in the minds of ordinary people, if that was front page news? Well, maybe that was the case in Britain. What about America? have here the New York Times edition for Black Saturday. Let's see how they covered it. Now the headlines and stories are of course quite standard as you'd expect so let's look at the little stories next to them see what they can tell us. 
There is one which caught my eye on the front page saying City Recruiting Fire Volunteers. It says a call has gone out to find 49,000 men willing to train as fire auxiliaries in case New York is attacked. They ask for retired firemen, those who've applied for jobs and are on waiting lists, those who served as fire volunteers in the war, or just able-bodied men to sign up. The article also says that owners of trucks and commercial vehicles may be required to hand them over to the fire department for their use. Now that, of course, tells us a lot about how ordinary people were responding to the threat during the Cuban Missile Crisis. New York City figuring it will need 48,000 new firemen. On page four, we see that, incredibly to me, America conducted a nuclear test. I don't know a lot about the protocol for nuclear testing, but doesn't common sense say that you shouldn't be firing nukes during this dreadful nuclear crisis? Nonetheless, there was a nuclear test 750 miles southwest of Hawaii, near Johnson Island. The paper tells us that the flash was seen in Honolulu as, quote, a short-lived flash of light. A reddish glow arched across the clear sky when the shot went off a few seconds past midnight. The colour changed quickly to green, then grey-blue. Then the glow disappeared. It just seems foolhardy to me to be firing nuclear weapons when you're at the heart of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but there you are. Going onwards in the paper, there was also a report on the attitude of Midwesterners to the crisis. It found that they were bellicose and exhibiting positive belligerence. And the paper wondered if this meant that the old isolationism of the Midwest states had finally vanished. Local politicians had caught the mood and were demanding invasion of Cuba. A North Dakota senator said, we're going to have to clean up Cuba one way or another. And a history professor spoke about the Midwest's unusual attitude to foreign affairs, suggesting their attitude was often less sophisticated than that of the East Coast and some West Coast states. The interior of the country, he agreed, often feels isolated and displays an inferiority complex in foreign affairs. Turning to page 10, we see an advert for the Journal American, which I've never heard of before, entitled Where to Go, What to Do if Nuclear War Comes to New York. The advert says, learn just what you should do to protect yourself and your family if nuclear weapons fall upon New York. Prepared in cooperation with civil defence authorities, this full page of timely and practical advice tells how New Yorkers can best avoid destruction if such an attack comes while you're at home, at school, at work or in transit. Don't miss this public service feature in Sunday's Journal American. But the paper isn't obsessed with Cuba. I'd expected to see page after page, blanket coverage, but no, there is plenty of normal news. Plenty of what we might call boring, humdrum news, such as 
16 whooping cranes fly to Texas Wildlife Refuge. And Iowa is debating lawful drinking. And there are book reviews, theatre listings, ads for fur coats, pianos, thermal blankets. So let's look at the paper in other dates during the Cuban crisis. On Friday the 26th, that's the day before Black Saturday, it was reported that the government had released a report about America's fallout shelter capacity and that this had been done in response to a flood of inquiries prompted by people worried about Cuba. The report said that potential fallout shelter spaces for 60 million people had been identified in 112,000 structures across the country. Another story said that the Benjamin Franklin Bridge, which links New York with New Jersey, had been closed to pedestrian traffic in order to deter sabotage, and the nearby Walt Whitman Bridge had an increased police presence. Now, I've never heard of that before, that the mainland were expecting or worried about attacks, sabotage attacks by enemies or by people within who were sympathetic, perhaps, to the communist cause. Interestingly, we have a report from Warsaw saying that rationing had been introduced because the Cuban crisis had prompted housewives to start panic buying and hoarding food. Meanwhile, protests were being held across Poland in schools and factories against American action in the Caribbean with the slogan, Hands off Cuba! However, the article says this might be a good sign, the situation being previously too grim for protest larks. And on a lighter note, we see that a Russian circus had arrived in Cuba and despite the blockade, had managed to get all their acrobats and animals through. You'll notice there was no podcast last Sunday and I apologise for this, but I weakened. I buckled under the amount of work that I have to do. It's my own fault. I took on a newspaper commission about Chernobyl, despite promising myself I'd take on no more outside commitments because, of course, the deadline for my book is drawing near. So last week I was feeling a bit weak and scared and overwhelmed. But it passes and you just get on with things, don't you? Thank you for those who sent messages of support, checking in that I was okay. I am, I'm just um, busy and <laughs> still learning how to cope with it all. But here I am, back in the saddle, and I hope you've liked this week's episode. Can I remind you that I've started uploading nuclear films to my YouTube channel, recording them here in my study with Bomba beside me. Yes, I know that was stupid to start a YouTube channel when I'm supposed to be cutting back on any distractions. But if you want to see it, I'm on YouTube as The Atomic Hobo, so please do go and subscribe to the channel. Remember, of course, I'm on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell and on Facebook as Nuclear Britain. And if you like my nuclear work, please do consider donating through Patreon. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And I thank everyone who donates. This week, let me give a shout out to the kind patrons at the Castle Bravo and Vulcan levels. And that is... Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Craig Bushman, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, 
Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan and Peter Lee. As you'll have heard in previous podcasts, I've now got so many patrons, I think it's 98, that I can't take up half of the podcast reading out the names, so I'm doing it in chunks every week. So this week, as I say, it's the Castle Bravo and Vulcan guys who got a shout out. Of course, I'm grateful to everyone who supports my work, the writing of the book, the podcast and now the YouTube channel. Oh, but before I go, let me remind you that the music for this podcast is provided by X, and you can find X on Twitter at XBandUK.